Hello friends, and welcome to the very first episode of Within the Musician. This show is a place of discovery for all students, performers, educators, and future educators. My name is Monica Williams. I'm a flutist, teaching artist, recording artist, performer, composer, and lifelong learner. In this podcast, we will have weekly guests that explore why music matters. We'll talk about the struggles and the triumphs. But above all, we'll draw inspiration from one another as we explore new ways to make ourselves happier and healthier human beings. Music is not just about the study of tone, technique, rhythm, or theory. We will explore topics like stress management, perfectionism, communication, connection, and above all, self-care and compassion. This first episode will feature a very special guest, Aaron Goldman. Aaron is a flutist of the National Symphony Orchestra. He's principal position there, and he's a lifelong friend of mine. We went to college together and have stayed in touch through all these years. Today, we're going to talk about how Aaron got into music and his secret to success, which is not always about how long you practiced. He really opens up and talks about the importance of being resilient and mindset, something that's not talked about too much in your schooling of being a musician. Together, we'll explore why music matters even during a global pandemic. Welcome, Aaron Goldman, to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to get to talk to you. Yes, we get to. We were just chatting before we we got on. We need to do this more. You know, during this whole pandemic thing, we actually started something with our flute studio that we had never done. We need to do another one, um, which was to get our entire flute studio together on Zoom. That was so much fun. I'll tell you, it's like the one of the few upsides of the pandemic is getting to visit with people who you can never get in the same place. But over Zoom, now we're used to it. And yeah, it was great. All five of us who came in together getting to be in the same place. It was great. Yeah, so we we're like, why didn't we think of this before? It takes a <laughs> pandemic to like get us to think, hey, there's technology. We can we can hang out together and 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 get to know what's going on in everyone's world now. So, how have you been doing? You're in Washington, and there we're in at the time of this taping. We're like what in month nine of this pandemic. So, tell us what's happening with National Symphony and what you've been up to during this period. So the pandemic came, uh, you know, the end of February and the orchestra was scheduled to go on a tour. We were about to leave for Japan and China on a few week tour. Uh, The China portion of the tour was canceled sort of pretty early on, but the Japan piece uh, was still maybe going to go. It was canceled just a few days actually before we were supposed to leave or maybe about a week before we were supposed to leave. And we put on a few little, you know, quick concerts to make up for some of the time we lost for the tour, but then really it was the last time the orchestra as a whole got together. So 
Uh, I think it was that first week of March was the last time we really did anything as an ensemble. And then, yeah, it's been pandemic. There was a lockdown. I mean, the orchestra, I mean, the Kennedy Center, so the NSO is part of the Kennedy Center and the Kennedy mm-hmm. Center closed. Um, their first thing I think was canceling uh, through the end of 1920s season. And then of course they had to cancel the beginning of the 2021 season. And then just a few days ago, they announced their closing until April 25th. So uh, the NSO has been as active as they can be. They're trying to do some stuff. A lot of the things that happened right away when the Kennedy Center closed was the musicians started doing stuff. We said, hey, we got to we got to get out there. We got to keep doing. So uh, the musicians of the NSO started a weekly concert. They I think it's called NSO at home where you can perform from your living room and live stream it. Yes. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So things like that. And uh, Were you performing from your window. Did I see a post like that? Were you performing <laughs> from your window? I did. So uh, our principal bassoonist came to the backyard and uh, made a videotape of me playing from out my window. <laughs> That's so cool. I've been encouraging people to like, I I hear stories, especially in New York of people playing out windows, singing out windows. And like, it kind of comes back to even though there's so much technology, just the essence of sharing music and, you know, out your window is like, you know, a good way to get it out there. So that's super cool. And the porch concerts have been a thing, you know, just opening up to your neighbors, the people who can hear you from your front door. So I think music is yeah, I've always thought it's something that needs to be shared. It's meant to be shared. We spend so much time alone in a practice room as as musicians, kind of the large part of our job. But really, unless music is shared, I feel like it's missing a big part of its existence. So any way you can find to share it, I think, is worthwhile exploring. Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, I was I was just talking to this about someone else about this, but it's challenged us on those ways to share things. At least it has for me, all these virtual concerts. I saw one of NSO on your um, Veterans Day concert. That was the best editing job of a virtual concert I think I've ever seen. Um, If you are not following, NSO has a nice Instagram page, probably Facebook as well. Um, But I was, that was really, I think that editing, the things that are needed behind a virtual concert is, is much more, technical labor and that was you have some good technical people that are helping you to get that out there (laughs) yeah it's amazing amazing. you know when the when the pandemic when it first started i said oh look i i can make a video i'll do something and i made an arrangement of a a bach piano piece and i recorded the four parts two flutes alto and bass and recording the parts was fine. I like I could do that. And then I tried to put them together using some movie program, and I was just not technically literate enough to do it. And then, now they're just sitting there on my computer. <laughs> I can't manage to get myself to figure out how to do it. Oh, do you, acapella. Acapella is great. I don't know if you know that app, but so they, I, they I, do it for you. <laughs> yeah, this was, I think, through iMovie. Maybe um, acapella mm-hmm. would have been better. So I know your story of your beginnings, but I wanted to go into a little bit about how you got into music and how you got into the flutes. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit? Uh, So my flute beginnings, you know, I started playing flute in my local school. Uh, I started actually when I was in second grade, which was a year earlier than most kids at 
in the school where I started, most kids start in third grade, but, uh, Somehow, I, I don't remember exactly why I wanted to play the flute. I think one of my relatives had one, and I don't know, you're a little kid. What <laughs> I don't know what attracted me as a little kid when I started. but uh, So I played starting from second grade, and I joined the band and did all that stuff. And I think one of the things that kept me going early on in the flute was that since I was, since I had an extra year above my classmates, just I'd been learning for longer. It was something that I was always sort of advanced at. Um, Mm. So, um, you know, in bands, oftentimes I would get, you know, to play the solos and stuff like that. So um, I don't think it was because I was naturally more talented than anyone else. So I had just been doing it for longer. So, uh, and I think when I was young, just being good at something, you know, it was, it was encouraging. So I kept at it. Um, And I played through high school, I played in the local youth orchestra. uh, But I will say by the time I got into high school, you know, all the people that one year of early training, it didn't mean as much anymore. So by the time you get to high school, everyone else is caught up and then not only caught up, but people have kept going and gotten uh, sort of more advanced. But, you know, my youth orchestra conductor, when I was after my junior year, uh, he didn't think I was any good and he tried to kick me out. <laughs> I remember not... you telling me that story that, and I think that's absolutely crazy. Yeah. But it was yes. the same thing. You know, I'd taken a lesson uh, with a prominent flute teacher at a major American conservatory. Uh, this was before my senior year of high school. And I remember playing for him and he said to me after he heard me play, he's like, you need to find something else to do. You will never have a successful career in music. So find something else. Yeah. yeah. I remember you telling me that too. That is incredibly crazy i mean do you ever think like you're very resilient in many ways because i don't think many people could handle that kind of you know direct and blunt and ignorant kind of criticism and continue on it must have thrived you in some way because you seem to i mean it didn't it didn't phase you obviously i I don't know maybe it's just natural stubbornness i don't know (laughs) i don't know but you know in a way i think it was a very helpful thing for me to to hear uh, one of the things when I left school and was taking auditions and not winning auditions for all those years, um, I think it helped me not to have an expectation that I was going to, you know, walk in and be able to do it. I sort of had that that idea in the back of my head that no, of course I I won't be successful. You know, of course I won't be able to do it. This guy told me that you know all those years ago, and my mindset was more that look, I'm going to do this as long as I can do it. I'm just going to keep at it as long as I'm, as long as I'm able. And without the expectations sort of weighing me down, it was like, okay, I lost this one. Eh, not a big deal. I'll just go on to the next one and see what happens. I think I was very fortunate that when I left school, I was able to get uh, a job. My first job after graduating from Eastman, it was a one-year position in the Greater Lansing Symphony. Mm-hmm. It was only a one-year position, but uh, I left graduate school. I had just started, actually, at NEC, studied with Paula Robeson, who I wanted to study for years. It would have been mm-hmm. great. I would have loved uh, to have time with her. But I left for the job in Lansing, and I spent that whole year in Lansing trying to get another job <laughs> so I wouldn't have to go back to graduate school. And the last audition of that year, I had just finished Lansing, and it was the last audition. It was like... Um, in the summer, like the early summer, was Principal Flute in the Orlando Philharmonic. And yeah, I was fortunate to have won that. So in the years between 
then when I first started Orlando uh, to the time uh, where I won assistant in NSO, uh, I was fortunate to be playing in a job, like auditioning and playing. So yes, that was a big thing. So for those that don't know about the orchestral audition process, can you summarize the process for those people, the amazing world of orchestral flute auditioning? First of all, how many auditions did you take between that point going from Michigan to principal in NSO, how many, if you had to guesstimate, how many auditions would you have taken? So, you know, I've been asked this question other times and <laughs> I should actually count, but I stopped counting because it got a little depressing. So basically I did six years or six or seven years of auditions. Um, from So I joined the Orlando Philharmonic in 2020 um, and I won assistant in NSO in 2006. Um, no, sorry, not 2020. I Sorry, I started NSO. Orlando Philharmonic in 2000. Did I say mm -hmm. 2020? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is pandemic time. Nothing, yeah. you know, there's pandemic time. There's no such thing. In 2000, I won NSO in 2006. Uh, so it was about seven years, including the year when I was in in Lansing taking auditions. Uh, so for those of you who don't, haven't taken auditions or don't know how it works, you're given a list of excerpts uh, from the standard orchestral repertoire, and you play depending on the audition between, you know, five and 10 minutes for each round. And yeah, it's a sort of intense process where you have to perform at your peak in less than ideal <laughs> circumstances. So yeah. And usually there are three rounds, a preliminary round, a semifinals and a finals. Um, mm hmm and yes, it's a, it's a girl. Did I, what was your shortest audition ever? So you travel to these places, obviously they're not traveling to you. So there's the whole traveling part of it. Um, what was the shortest audition ever? Oh gosh, it must've been like two minutes. That, <laughs> there've been places you play like the Mozart exposition. Thank you. <laughs> and you think, wow, I just practiced for months and paid all this money to go. But right, that's the fact of life for auditions. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as I'm, Looking through Facebook posts and a lot of musicians, performing is their kind of musical identity. We're kind of like, it's it, we're kind of at a point in time where that, as we talked about earlier, we're reinventing ourselves and, and um, it's a hard time for, for a lot of artists out there that are, that are performing artists. Any advice to those people that have found themselves in a position that you're not performing? How do you keep sane without the grounding of performing that has been your life? You know, it's a, it's an excellent question. And your, and your question for me is, Oh, do you have any advice? And I will say if, anyone out there has advice, please, I could use some advice. It's yeah. a real challenge. I mean, in the, the, the reality, since I basically left school, it was my life has been preparing for the next concert. And that's just mm. been the way it's been for my whole professional career. And all of a sudden that stopped. Mm -hmm. And I remember when, as I mentioned, the tour was canceled. And so I was looking at, you know, we didn't really know what was going to happen, but like, oh, hey, look, we've got like, two weeks off in the middle of the season. This is great. It's kind of like uh, a nice respite that we usually don't get. Uh, so I took a little time off and then things just getting canceled more and more and more. And 
yeah, it's like that motivation to pick it back up when you see like everything that you had worked for your whole life just kind of disappearing. It was a real challenge. And I think a lot of musicians uh, have struggled with this. I mean, there's no easy answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, actually, the thing that got me out of it, an oboist in the orchestra asked me to record a little bit of a, a Bach thing that she was making a compilation video. And I took the flute out for the first time in a little while just to make this video. And I played again. I'm like, oh, hey, I really like this. <laughs> I've been doing this the whole time. This is great. Uh, yeah. So finding a new motivation and a new, like a new something to keep you going, right? Yeah. It can't just be the next concert. Exactly. And, you know, everyone, I mean, you, we are in a global pandemic and a, and a global crisis amongst political turmoil and, you know, climates. There's so many things in the world right now that is heavy, very, very heavy. And for me, I would see these amazing social media posts of people that are like starting their next CD and they're starting this project. And, you know, I just didn't feel it. I'm like, I'm not feeling creative right now. It almost put a little guilt complex on me. I'm like, you know, I have this time that I can be doing something that's creative and I just don't feel it. So I think that it's important to remind everyone that however you respond or are responding to this is fine because some people are going to be practicing or putting more music into the world and other people are going to take a little bit of time for reflection and that, that creative process might come a lot later. So, you know, it's it's easy as an artist. I think we're very um, self-judging when we see other people and what they're doing and we feel like there's a lack there. Of. Right. So um, I'm glad you're, you got back into it. I love seeing all the virtual things. I actually, <laughs> I, I really, I really do. Well, it's funny. You're absolutely right with that. And that guilt, it, uh, yeah, it's something that I think we have to constantly work on letting go of because it's not really helpful. It doesn't help you sort of progress in what you're doing. Uh, you know, one of the things that I had always thought about these projects, right, that I had in the back of my head. And the excuse always was, well, I'm in working so much, there's no time, you know, I don't have time to do any of this. And really, now I have all the time in the world to do it. <laughs> I realized maybe that wasn't the correct excuse. Maybe there was something else keeping me from doing those things. Well, you do a ton. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. I think that we're, we're really hard on ourselves. I mean, lots of professions are, but musicians were, there's a lot of perfectionism and, and um, it's like, I don't know, this was a thing early in my career. How many hours did I practice as if that was going to be my self-worth? I practiced six hours today. I did great, you know, and so like that kind of, that kind of um, mental focus was, was based upon, at least for me, how much I did. Um, and, and that's oh, not always the case. Absolutely. I mean, we were at, so, uh, Monica and I, you know, we were at Eastman together. We joined the Stanford, we left the same time. And, uh, I think we had a similar experience. I mean, this is what people would talk about. Like, yes. oh my gosh, that person practices so much. Of course they're going to get a job and they're going to be amazing because they're first one in the practice room and the last one out. And of course that creates a huge amount of pressure and, uh, yeah, it's the wrong metric, but it totally is. I, I think freshman year, I had like this, I know, like you, I realized that, you know, there's a lot of really great people, you know, you've been kind of top at the top of your or 
you know, high school thing. And then all of a sudden college is like, oh my God, everyone is so amazing. I think it was at the practice room, like at seven 30 in the morning, like, you know, until freshman classes didn't start till like noon for some reason, you know, it was like a, a long time, maybe like four hours before noon sometimes for, for practicing. It was, it was crazy. I did chill out after that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was a, that was a crazy time. Um, so some musicians, you're fortunate. I know that some of the orchestras have been able to sustain for the time being financially to some to some degree, which is great. Are you worried about the smaller orchestras? So I I know so many musicians right who are whose basically livelihood completely dried up and went to zero. And I mean, we're very fortunate in the NSO that they are. That we are still being paid. Uh, granted, we renegotiated contracts like most all orchestras did, mm-hmm. and I imagine the long-term effects will, you know, we'll have those around for for a while. Uh, but no, I'm, I mean, I feel very fortunate. I mean, look at the opera orchestras, even like the Met, which hasn't been paid in a long time, and a lot of the local musicians here in town who were freelancing and you know having really good careers. It's like there's nothing, nothing left so yeah it's tough and i you know who knows yet what it's going to look like at the end i don't think anyone really has an idea but we'll have to see i mean we've never hit a point in our history like this i have to take hope that music matters and we'll find a way to have many layers of performing tires so that there can be greater accessibility to in all areas. You don't wouldn't have to live in a major city in order to have an orchestra like NSO. Yeah. Um, for those musicians that are out there, you know, the one thing that I I think I want to express is that there you are still a musician if you don't have an income stream that comes from music. You know, during this time, I think that there's nothing wrong with picking up something that has nothing to do with music, like, you know, Uber driving or one of these other gig economy working things. Because I think that, as we talked about earlier, there's such an identity with being a musician that that can feel self-defeating to not have that income stream or livelihood associated with the work that you've put so much time and energy and and essence into. So um, that's one thing that that I wanted to to express is that I think we all have to reimagine what being an artist looks like. And I'm fortunate that I have I love teaching and there's always people that want to learn the craft. And I think now more than ever, um, that's that's something that could be helpful to those musicians, artists, dancers, Las Vegas, I think of everyone, Broadway, um, those people that are in that situation that this will hopefully be temporary, but everyone needs to think outside of the normal wheel that you would normally been thinking in to make it through this time period. And I, I don't think it'll be an immediate comeback as soon as we get the vaccine. I think it's going to be a little bit, we're going to have to dig a little bit. We're going to have to be a little stronger. We're going to have to be a little bit more innovative. Um, I'm really encouraged by the organizations that have stepped up to help though. Um, 
in San Francisco alone, there's this organization, the Theater Works Bay Area, that really has been raising money for artists since the beginning of this. Uh, for the Grammys, Music Cares, I'm sure you know of others. There's been lots of organizations that have stepped up to help artists. And that makes me encourage that artists and musicians matter because there's so many people that are advocating and, and working to help. Yeah, it's yeah, it's going to be a, a a long road, but we'll get there. And I, you know, music and artistry and all of these things that to me boil down to human connection. I, that we will always have a need for human connection, and in all of these ways that artists musicians, dancers, theater, all of these things, uh, which are struggling really hard right now, uh, they are not less necessary. So, Yes, yes. We'll always be, I mean, the arts, it's kind of who we are, you know. So, you know, it, it, I, I do have hope and faith that that will bounce back. And I have this dream or, or um, image of all of these organizations being like sold out for like six months. Like, you know, I just, I hope that people will go back and like make up for all this missed time and, um, and support local and national artists so that we can, we can really make up for lost time. Cause we need to make up for lost time when this, when this comes back, is NSO doing anything like that? Like gift cards or like, you know, subscriptions for the next season or like, how could people help that, that want to support the arts? What would your advice be? How should, how should they help? So I, it's an excellent question. I don't know what they're, I don't know specifically what they're doing for those. I know all arts organizations would be very happy for any kind of donations they could get. Uh, I think really they're living on donations since they can't earn any earn any income at the moment. So it's really things are, I think, mostly based on donations. So if you have uh, a desire or wish and the means to help out any any arts organization, I'm sure would be very happy to take your call. Yes, and you know, little things do matter. I mean, if you you just look around. Um, you can probably call your your local arts organization. I know a lot of artists have put up Patreon pages. That's great. So you can support, you know, an artist. Um, and a lot of them are doing virtual content and delivering it to the, you know, for free. You can support them that way. There's so many ways. But I think that, you know, when there's not the physical space, people forget about that. That, you know, you can still, that money that you would have spent on your concerts that you would have gone to, you can still spend that amount or donate that amount. And that would really help so that we don't get too behind in this. We're already behind, let's face it. But, yeah. you know, we can begin to dig ourselves out of this because we we need we need the arts um, and and we need to be innovative right now as we as we go through this. Um, so you said that NSO is off until April 25th. The hope is that you would start again in in May. I guess I don't know. They just officially, oh, how did they say it exactly? Is they are canceling previously scheduled programming through April twenty fifth, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I know it's it's a day by day thing. I think that since March, we we all just don't believe anything anymore. <laughs> I know, right? Because each you know each time they put up a a, a, a moment, hey, maybe we can open. It keeps getting pushed. So. There is, I think, a hopefully light at the end of the tunnel. Just a question of how long mm -hmm. this remaining bit of tunnel lasts. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yes. Okay. So I want to go back to just music making in general. So flute, we, we both play the flute. This is not a podcast about flute, but we'll, we'll talk about, about flute practice and, and, and being here. So do you ever have just a bad day, just a bad music day, bad tone day? And how do you handle that? How do you handle that? I mean, because I get teaching this, I get, you know, some students are surprised, you know, that, that there was a bad day as, as, as if that's like, you know, professionals don't experience this. Do you experience this? <laughs> all the time. Absolutely. 100% yes. I like to tell my students that all of the things that they're experiencing, right? Like those things don't stop. They don't go away. It's not like all of a sudden there's some magic answer to like how to play the flute and then everything's peachy. Like it's just not the way life works. And I remember actually being a student just searching for this secret. I would hear people play and I'm like, wow, if they would just tell me what it is that they're doing and then I could do that too, I'd have the secret and then everything would be great. <laughs> And that's just not the way life works, unfortunately. And well, I shouldn't say it. There is a key, and the key is just hard work. And anyone can do the work. And if you do the work, then you know you'll have the tools you need to overcome those those issues that crop up. But the answer to the bad day, yeah, sure. And I would you know, have to go and play concert, you know, with Daphnis or something. I'm like, oh, it's a bad day, and there's Daphnis coming up, but what can you do? I mean, you find the ways to just sort of make it work when you have to make it work. And you understand that some things, some days it just won't be comfortable and quote unquote easy. Uh, and then other days it'll feel great, but you still have to make it work. So you have, at least the way I've tried to think about it, is that you have these like um, things that you can do. If someday you're, you feel like your breathing's not great, uh, you you know, try thinking about breathing in another way. So like I have this like bag of tricks, right? So like, depending on what is not feeling great or not working great, I can, you know, pick out a trick and try that and see if that helps. And if that doesn't work, I'll grab them into my bag and, you know, try something else. So um, I've just over the years, like had a built up as big a bag of those things as possible, just to sort of make it when you have to make it. Hmm. Yes. And I, I, you know, I remember I called you once. So there was years and years ago, I forget, it might have been up in that long, like seven years ago. And I was having a series of these bad days and I had to go into the recording studio and I was beginning to freak out, self-doubt, you know, am I a good enough artist? And I called Aaron. I'm like, hey, Aaron, this is going on. I feel like I'm like, you know, I'm horrible. And, you know, we've been at this a long time. So, it, you know, I think this is a common experience. But I remember you gave me such, I don't know if you remember this conversation, but you gave me such a great piece of advice that I've passed that on. And that was, you know, you, the audience will accept whatever sound you give them that day. And only you really feel that because you're being hyper self-critical. And that was like really very helpful for me to hear that, that it's very much coming from the self when you're experiencing those bad days. It's not that it's not real, that you're not producing the best of your possible ability in the spectrum of whatever that ability is, but that your audience doesn't know that scale and maybe some of those creative moments or like a new way of playing could develop because you are going through this little you know wrinkle in your your time spectrum of of playing so thank you for that that was cool. <laughs> i'm glad that's helpful actually it's 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 always in the back of my mind also 
Because <laughs> really, I mean, the way, and we think about it for audition, you know, I mentioned the audition experience for the orchestra audition experience is never a time where you are going to be playing what you feel like is your best. It's just, it's too much pressure. It's too many nerves. There's too much on the line. But I've always felt like the way you practice like you practice to get your hundred percent of good sound and a hundred percent of dynamics and hundred percent of expression, like so far, like so wide and so big that when you get into the audition and you can only play 60% of your best, that's still pretty darn good. So finding that ability to like practice much farther than you need to go. Uh, and then you don't have to bring your a game because mm -hmm. you can't always bring your a game. It's just not always possible. I like that way of thinking. Practice yeah. for 100% so that you can give 80%. That's that's kind of a, that takes the pressure off. I like that. I'm going to use that. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, yeah. So th this is a, this is a common experience. This kind of, this doesn't mean you're a bad musician if you have a bad day or a bad concert. And what is bad? Maybe I should stop getting, get rid of that word. Bad, bad is a word that's just, it's just less than a hundred percent. So I'll give you an idea. So I'll give you, when I first got the job as assistant principal and I was playing uh, before I'd gotten tenure, I remember, you know, I was so excited to get the job and it was like, been a, it was a dream come true. And I was so happy to be there. And uh, the way our concert hall works, the executive director used to sit up in a box that was like overlooking the stage. And I would go to work, uh, go to the concert and, be playing my stuff and I could sort of see her out of the corner of my eye looking down. And as I was getting closer and closer to the tenure decision, I just started getting more and more tense. And I started mm -hmm. thinking like, well, she's up there paying me to like spin this plate. You know, like I felt like a circus monkey, mm -hmm. like, and I like, don't drop the plate. <laughs> she's paying me. If I drop the plate, you're uh, not going to like that. And I'll tell you, feeling like a circus monkey it was not a, it was not a great feeling and i thought wow you know i worked so hard to get here and i'm not enjoying this and i don't think i want to do this forever yeah and into the process had come full circle from being about making music to just these technical aspects of doing it and it was the first time uh that i'd really had some physical injuries like i was like things were hurting in ways wow. that they never had and i thought wow my career is really going to be very short and it took a while, but, you know, the, I sort of got out of it by, I mean, you have to give up the idea of not dropping the plate. You know, no one cares mm -hmm. if you drop the plate, mm -hmm. uh, you can pick it back up. <laughs> but the idea is that people were coming to the concerts and this is going to sound arrogant. I don't mean it in an arrogant way. It was just a way that helped me let go of the, just the, uh, the pressure of having to, you know, get that high A pianissimo and not just piano. I said, people are coming because I have something to say and they want to hear what I have to say. So the more I could think, just tell myself that over and over as a mantra, like I have something to say, like say it, like do it, make something happen, like make some musical expression, make something that'll surprise and delight or whatever it is that you need to do. And over time I let go of this circus monkey thing and I can go into a concert now and I can, make mistakes. It happens. It's life that happens all over. Uh, I don't think anyone will tell you they can go in and just play it perfectly the way they want it every time. Anyway, and I just enjoyed the job much better and my physical pain went away. And it was really for me, the path forward. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's like, you know, it's true that with the tension can go into the body, the, the 
that that can distribute into your your musicality. So mindset is, is I feel like there needs to be like whole courses in college just about like mindset and the the mental aspect of the game. And, you know, I've just recently realized this whole phrase practice makes perfect is so damaging who came up with that they should be shot (laughs) like practice makes perfect is totally wrong um and if that's your goal you're never going to be happy and as you say the joy goes out of it if you're on that that stage and i mean this is widespread i mean the statistics were mind-boggling that i think it's 70 percent of american orchestras were taking beta blockers for nerves. Wow. Wow. 70%. Um, and it was kind of this survey. Now it was just one survey, but that's, that's pretty wide. That's pretty widespread. And I think that it's, it's, as you said, there's such a pressure to perform and not drop the plate that, you know, that we're trying to eliminate the physical aspects of nerves and some nerves can be good. We're going to have a mental health professional on later. We'll talk more about this topic of, of anxiety, but that, that, you know, if you let go of the pressure, things can more magically happen. There might be more expression and more connection to the music that it's, you know, you might be shaking just a little less, but that doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily be better than it's just different than, Exactly. So. And the nerves, again, they, they don't really ever go away. Of course, you, again, it's just the idea that you're finding ways to deal with them and handle them. Uh, sometimes I feel more nervous than others, but again, you still have to go, <laughs> still have to play. So mm-hmm. uh, just finding ways to handle it. Um, you know, the idea of practice makes perfect. I agree with you. I don't think that's the way we should practice. I mean, I, my idea of practicing is um, what I'm trying to do when I practice is just isolate the the physical things that you have to do. Cause really there are physical things that you have mm-hmm. to do, like to play your scales evenly, your fingers, muscles have to actually move all evenly, right? You just have mm-hmm. to train each muscle. So uh, for me, practicing like kind of is in, in two things. There's the physical things that we have to be able to do and you train those things. And I try to make sure that each thing is separate. Like my technique won't affect what my air is doing. My mm-hmm. articulation won't, change the air. Um, you know, philosophically, I feel like air is the expression. We play mm-hmm. a wind instrument, like that's the thing we have of ourselves that we're giving. I feel like to me, that's like my insides that I'm mm-hmm. allowing to go out into the world. But the other things, the tongue, the fingers, even the embouchure and all of those things. So I think it, we do need to practice those things so that when we go to perform, the music and the expression in the air can be first and foremost on our mind and all of the other things we don't have to spend mental activity on, right? So uh, it's not about sort of getting perfection. It's about mastering the tools that you'll need to kind of make a sculpture in real time, right? So musicians basically were artists of sound and the sound is just always changing and always moving and you have to kind of sculpt it as it's coming out of you. Uh, So you want to make sure all of your tools are very well honed, right? Like it's kind of hard to make a really nice, I don't know, like a smiley face of someone if your chisel is like too thick to make a smile, right? Right. So we want to hone those skills. And so for me, practicing like those things, it's like a very technical kind of exercise. And I always think like the technical ability to play the flute, it's learnable by anyone. Like anyone can do it. Like there are just things that you need to, you know, 
you just whittle away at your <laughs> your kind of chisel. Mm -hmm. right? uh, and then there's the other aspect, which is like the creativity part, the expression part, and what it is that you do in your practice room to kind of sculpt a musical phrase. And not to say that when you perform that you have to make this exact same sculpture, but uh, yeah, there's, that's like the creative side to me. Like that's the mm -hmm. piece that I find, you know, most rewarding and most fulfilling. Uh, and it's a challenge, especially when you're playing sort of for an audition, we were talking about auditions before where you have to play just these tiny little excerpts of music. So if you have to play a Beethoven excerpt for a 30-second Beethoven piece, and then you have to play a 30-second Mendelssohn piece, and then something by Mahler, uh, the sculpture that you make for each one of those has to be like totally different, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so like finding your Beethoven to sound like the most Beethoven, right? And mm -hmm. making your Mahler sound the most Mahler, like those things just take artistry and creativity and uh, sort of the more, for me, enjoyable aspects of of practicing and being a musician. I think we get too caught up in the technical things. And especially, again, for auditions, I have people come say, oh, well, this wasn't just perfect. It wasn't just right, you know? I'm like, well, okay, you can make it just right. But if you don't have anything to say about it, you're still mm -hmm. not going to get the job. So I think you really need need both. Yes, both definitely. And, and that's a good point. Like, you basically are talking about, like, each little skill set is a different compartment and those compartments don't like affect one another, which often happens. It's like, you know, it's not the intention, but if your sound isn't the way you hoped it would be, um, that affects the technique, which then affects the articulations, which then affects this. And now you, now you're not happy, really not happy just because of one element. But I love the idea of, of the sounds and tone constantly changing and, and just that, just that awareness and acceptance of that, I think would help a lot of people relax because I think there's a panic that sets in. If it wasn't exactly like you loved it in that moment in the practice room that you're like, save and never change it. And then it doesn't happen in the audition or performance, you know, that, that can throw all those other compartments off. So just the acceptance that you're in a it's in a transformational state could actually relax people and give a better performance. So, so yeah. this is something that would happen. So the orchestra usually would do when we're playing three concerts a week. So we do like Thursday, Friday and Saturday concert. And if things go really well on Thursday and just for me on a personal level, but also for the orchestra as a whole, uh, if we have a really great Thursday concert, I would find sometimes the Friday concert would be not quite as good because there's this expectation like, Oh, I want to recreate, the Thursday because Thursday was great. But if you're trying to recreate something that already mm -hmm. happened, of course you can't and doesn't allow you to, again, sculpt the music in the moment. Uh, so yeah, mm -hmm. I try every time to come in. It's a fresh performance. Again, it always doesn't always happen like that, but the idea is the mentality is to try to keep it always the process of this is what we're doing. This is what I'm going to try to make. Right. Uh, yeah. And not, trying to recreate either what happened in the practice room, which again is not possible or the night before. Uh, yeah. It's too much pressure. It is. It is. I, I'm, I'm so guilty of that in the studio. You'll do a take. I love it except for this one little thing. And you try, try and do it just like that, except for that little thing. And of course it's, you know, it's, 
it doesn't i usually end up with the first take <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and accept that little thing that's that was the first it's so hard to like if you, once you get into that mindset of like do it just like that um it's so hard to get out of that you know because you're on you're on edge and you're not in the creation element it's not a flow i guess experience it's it's uh you know, the monkey trying to not drop the plate, you know, type the monkey of monkey not trying to drop, <laughs> drop the plate. It's not great. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the things that I found helpful, you know, if you feel like you're not having a good sound day or things aren't working or whatever, like the, one of the things that has helped me over time. So the, like, I like to think of sound uh, in terms of colors. So I can have like a purple sound or a pink sound or a green sound and like try to m- manipulate those colors sort of as I'm playing. And I think some of the things when we feel like we're having a bad sound day, it's like, oh, you can't get this exact purple. You know, you can't quite get that. But there's lots of music making you can do without that purple. You know, you can just stay in the reds or do some yellows. Um, So it's the idea that, oh, I can't get this just so. But like, well, there's plenty of other things you could do Mm -hmm. instead of that. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's helpful for a lot of musicians, not just flutes, because sound is in all you know instruments string or winds um and voice as well that i'm sure that there's challenges that that are in all of those that the mindset would be very helpful to kind of rethink and reimagine um to take the pressure off so that you can make music and you can have joy because if there's not joy in music as you say there's there's no point you might as well be doing something else there's there's easier careers so <laughs> there's easier careers than music if you don't enjoy this process yeah. so that being said there will be times and i for sure there were for me where it's not easy i mean you're in the practice room alone and trying to get things and it doesn't feel good and you feel like oh maybe i'll never get it and there have been times i want to throw the flute out the window and walk <laughs> away and say this is a I'm happy to be done with all of this. Um, But I think it's important in those moments to really think about what it is and look inside and say, look, is this, am I feeling this way because I'm fearful that, you know, I'm putting all this work and I still won't be able to quote unquote, make it, whatever that means. Or are you feeling pressure because you look around at your colleagues and think, oh, well, they do it better. But I'll tell you something, you'll always have that feeling. You'll always be able to look around and say, oh, I think those people do it better. So if your self-worth as a musician is as a comparison to peers, you'll never be happy. So mm-hmm. uh, making sure that, again, this this process is one that you enjoy doing, that you find creative uh, energy from, sort of separate from those other aspects of fear and comparison, comparing yourself to others. Yeah, because those those things might not ever go. You might have to live your whole career with those feelings. But as long as you find fulfillment and creativity in making music and making your own music, then you should keep going and keep doing it. It's such an important point. I mean, like your self-worth and not comparing yourself, which is hard because as classical musicians, we're not so good about instilling this in our young, you know, what other class in school do they seat you in order of best position to worst position? 
starting in sixth grade. And so, you know, while I understand it, it's the first chair versus last chair. For those of you who don't know, you get the first, the best person gets the first, the, the person who scores the worst gets the last. Um, if they did that in a math classroom, I, the teacher would be fired. You know, that <laughs> that just doesn't happen. But in music, that's, we, we begin that way. We begin kind of putting this, you know, your worth as a first chair player is better than your worth as a last chair player. I was just having this conversation with a with an eighth grader, it's about the process. No one will ever ask you what chair you got in any of those careers past, you know, certainly not in eighth grade and high school, never, ever been asked that question um, in my entire life. It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. But so while you're going through this process and there is comparison, there actually is, um, you know, a lot more competition. I think it's good to remember the bigger picture. And I think this is what your story is, the resilience that you experienced. I mean, what if you had listened to that orchestra director and so, what, yeah, junior my, year? My senior year, Allstate, Massachusetts, I grew up in Massachusetts. I was like 14th chair, Allstate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least you got an Allstate. That's great. <laughs> yeah, but. it was good. Um, though the years before I had been much higher. Um, mm-hmm. But then that year, look, auditions and all of these competitions, it's not a picture of you as a whole musician. It's a snapshot in time. And I tell my students all the time, so it makes no difference the outcome, either from these competitions or the auditions, whatever. Again, because it's a sliver, it's a moment, yeah? Mm -hmm. Uh, What matters is what you take from it, what you use from the experience and how you move forward. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's all that will sort of help move forward. The track to success, and this I think is not just for music, but in any career track, especially in the artist realm. It's not a straight track upwards. Um, Never has it been. So when you're in those lower moments, that's the opportunity to like reevaluate rest and then you come with another approach or just give it time. Sometimes it's just time. There's nothing you need to change. It's just a little time in order to, to kind of continue forward. Would you agree? That's absolutely true. Yeah. And actually, even in your introduction to this podcast, I think you said it exactly right about the lifelong learning is that if you ever feel like, yeah, I've got it. I understand. I know what to do. I think you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I will say I, I have no idea how to play the flute. I keep <laughs> trying to figure out how to play the flute. And I will in my continue my whole life to try to figure out how to play the flute. Uh, and if there's ever a time where I think, oh, yeah, I got it. Uh, it might be time to retire. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. Actually, in my research of, I, I actually did research, even though I've known you for forever. I listened to a podcast and, and in that podcast, you had played like um one of those bad flutes. I guess it was red, you said, which I just imagine is like one of those. <laughs> and you played it and you're like, you know, yes, it's not so good. I'm like, actually, that sounded pretty darn good. <laughs> so um, your, your, your demonstration actually failed because it oh, really actually <laughs> Aaron, what are you doing? Um but yes, it's it is a lifelong thing. You gotta you gotta you gotta keep at it. Um regardless of what what's happening, pandemic or um non-pandemic when this is all over, um things it's just you're gonna be continually kind of thrown little 
obstacles to 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 jump over and and to make it through. Okay, so I have some lightning round questions for you. Some fun things and some serious things. So just to kind of end the segments. Um, so lightning round questions. Fill in the blank. Lizzo is amazing. <laughs> totally, yes. Oh my gosh, she's like, you know, really made flute cool. We're now cool. <laughs> uh, we were always cool. But she she is amazing. I mean, in everything she does, amazing. Yes. A food you could eat for a week straight. Ooh, Thai food. Oh, me too. Yes. How long does it take you to get ready before a concert? Oh, well, you know, it's funny. It used to take me some time okay. and then we had kids. And now I do it in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, last movie or series you've watched in this oh. pandemic? Uh, gosh, I don't know what the kids thinks. I don't know. Our daughter's <laughs> super into Avatar, The Last Airbender. So we'll do Saturday night movie night and watch avatar which actually is not bad it's a good show was pretty good <laughs> that's funny uh least favorite piece you've ever performed Ooh, that's tough um you know i try as a musician not to have any of that it's like i feel like whatever we're given we have to commit to 100 percent and fully like make it like we love it and it's a cop-out question it totally I mean, is a cop-out cop question out. I, mean, I mean cop-out answer you is a great question but least favorite that's actually know. that's that's actually a good answer okay we'll accept that answer uh favorite place you've ever traveled to with nso or oh. anywhere i guess not well the nso so uh we took a russia tour and it was amazing just to be back in the places that the orchestra had visited with rostropovich and just the history of the orchestra with russia i thought that was a really really mm -hmm. amazing tour awesome favorite venue you've ever played in acoustically uh, so we played in the Opera House in Argentina, in uh, Buenos Aires. It's like an amazing space to play. Also, the new concert hall they built in uh, Beijing, in The Egg. I thought that was a great place. I really liked mm. playing there. Awesome. Um, a person that inspires you. Oh, so many people inspire me. Gosh. I will say, so one of the things that was sort of pivotal in my development, I was playing in Orlando and James Galway came and soloed with the orchestra and he was so generous with his time and he spent time talking to me and working with me. And that time, like being up close and watching him and talking to him, uh, that really changed things for me in a positive way. So. Oh. That's great to hear. Yeah. And final thought for those who want to pursue a career in music. What advice? We've talked a lot about advice, actually. Yeah. Final thought of something that they could take away. I would say the best piece of advice I can give you is like, if you want to do it, just keep your head down, like shut out as much of the noise as you can and you know, keep your eye on what you want to do and just go for it. Keep your head down, like don't get distracted by all the stuff that is very distracting especially you go to music school there's a lot of distracting stuff so there is keep your head down work hard and if you are committed to it and keep going i feel like there's nothing that could stop you that is great advice so mm -hmm. to recap this i think that your story is one of resilience if you are looking for a formula that formula to um success and anything but in classical music we're speaking of it's it seems to be a combination of patience worth ethic and resilience to to get to where you want to be 
Um, so thank you, Aaron. Thank you for, for being here. And this is our officially the first podcast of The Whole Musician. Uh, if you have enjoyed the show, please like, share, subscribe, and review. That will help us get higher in the algorithms and bring us to more performers, musicians, and music creators. Um, Aaron, if people want to know more about you or follow you, is there anywhere that they can do so? How do people how do people follow your career track? Oh gosh, I have to say, I, Monica, you are a huge inspiration to me and in all that you do. I'm very bad. I don't like do a Facebook or Instagram. I have none <laughs> of those things. I'm like, pretty terrible. But maybe this will be my pandemic project: is to make like a YouTube or something. You there? Yes. Okay, <laughs> let's go with NSO. There's lots of if you follow NSO on Instagram and Facebook, they they highlight the musicians of NSO in which yeah. Aaron is one. So you don't even need to do the pandemic project. They're putting there it out go. for you. So Monica, you'll help me because you do some <laughs> you do this stuff so well, and I I'm constantly uh, inspired by all the work that you're doing. And oh, it's mutual. It's mutual. Yeah. All right. Thank you for being here and. Uh, maybe later when this pandemic is over, we'll have you back on and, and talk about the wonderful things that are happening in the world with music. That sounds great. It's always amazing to talk to you. Thank you for taking time to listen to the very first episode of Within the Musician. In the next two episodes, I will feature John Herrera, who talks about the importance of being vulnerable in the recording process. And the third episode will feature my students as we talk about the challenges and rewards of virtual learning. I hope you'll tune in to future episodes of The Whole Musician.